Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Poltergeist 3. Okay, I am Sebastian, and I am here with Jennifer. Hello. And Troy. Hello. Yay. And we are here to round out the Halloween season with a discussion of Poltergeist 3 from 1988. But before we get into Poltergeist 3, we're going to take a little time with the rest of the Poltergeist franchise and see how we got to this point with Poltergeist 3. Because I think probably all three of us, to some degree, are pretty big fans of Poltergeist, especially the first movie. Jen, give me your history with Poltergeist. I love the original Poltergeist so much. Yeah, I can just remember seeing it. I didn't see it in the theater, um, seeing it on TV. And, you know, being legitimately scared of certain parts of the film. Like, again, to use the term kinder traumas all over the place. Robbie with the tree and, you know, the, the clown doll and uh, the paranormal guy who, like, tears off his face. Like, there were all kinds of, like, really um, frightening things to see at a young age. And, you know, over the years, I, I've grown to love it even more just because the family's so great. And all of that discussion of, you know, whose film it was, was it Toby's or was it Steven Spielberg's? And it's like, it really feels like it was both of theirs because you're getting Toby Hooper's terrifying, scary moments. And then you're getting all the warm, fuzzy, freeling family stuff too. It's just a really perfectly made film. I'm kind of down to watch it anytime. Then I remember Poltergeist 2 coming along. Again, seeing that at home, I think just on TV, I don't know, or maybe VHS at that point, I can't recall. There was things I liked about that too. I thought Kane was creepy, but it's not Poltergeist. 
you know, we'll talk about the third <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah. And then we had to, because we had to, I, because I made us do this, um, we had to also revisit the remake. I can't believe that you were the one that made you guys watch the remake. It sounds like something I would do, but <laughs> yeah. in this case, Jen was the one who insisted. I also made us see it in the theater. That's right. Really? So you were the one that dragged Seb out to the theater to see Poltergeist? I 100% yep. did. This is my jam, Troy. I love haunted house films. Oh, I know. I'm aware that Jen is a big fan of like the James Wan stuff. Love the Wanniverse. I love all of that. Seb is never not going to get out. He's not going to be able to avoid seeing any sort of film like that in the theater. Not until I become a ghost myself. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's basically no shitty haunted house movie that Jen isn't up for watching. That's right. I can appreciate that. It's her thing. It's her thing. Yeah. Troy, what is your history with Poltergeist and the Poltergeist franchise? Poltergeist is one of those that's like closest and dearest to my heart. I love pretty much every single thing about Poltergeist, even the stuff that is a problem with it. I just think it's kind of awesome. Like it sort of has a double climax, which is like, why do the Freelings stay another night? This is just totally ridiculous. That's the best part of the movie though. But that's what I mean. Like then all the monsters come out. All the good stuff happens. All the good stuff happens during that point. But I agree with you, Troy. We were just watching this again the other night. I turned this up and I was like, just so you know, we would not stay one second longer in this house. Like, we're so out of here. Yeah, and it's like, okay, kids, put yourself to sleep. Good night, everybody. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no, that would never, ever, no way. But anyways, yeah, Poltergeist, like you were saying, Jen, it's sort of a perfect peanut butter and chocolate. You can definitely pick out the Toby Hooper yeah. stuff in there. There's like, there's a scene where he's pulling that beast out of the, the other dimension in the bedroom that looks like it's cut like Texas Chainsaw. There's all these like quick angles and close up on his eye and everything. And I do like how it's this sort of Spielberg style, but you get this Jerry Goldsmith score, which is way more terrifying than like a John Williams. The effects in it blew my mind. It actually got me into trying to copy a lot of the effects when, when I was in doing animation work. And for a hot minute before uh, my family moved to the, the middle of rural nowhere, we lived in San Jose. And so I kind of lived in an area that kind of looked like that in a, in a sort of suburban development hell. And just in back of our house uh, was like this big field where it was about to be developed. It had that Southern sort of California bleak suburban entrenchment on these rolling hills. And so part of that really looked familiar to me. And then it just became a movie. It was one of these sort of uh, family movies where it would just sort of be on all the time. We would just play it all the time. And I saw it when I was way too young. And I still watch it all the time. So love Poltergeist. And then um, Poltergeist 2, I think I was young enough to be pretty excited about it. And I, I didn't have like my critical hat on yet. I would just sort of digest anything that was pumped out that was a sequel because it was just more of that good stuff but at least I, I remember poltergeist 2 delivered with kane the preacher who was really scary and that kind of wonderfully 
grotesque Ichar Giger monster that, yes. that came out of Stephen Freeling's mouth. After drinking a whole bottle of tequila, yes. Yeah, it, it, was, <laughs> it, it had one of those scenes. Like, And I remember in one of the other podcasts, you were talking about how all horror movies have that like one scene that needs to deliver. Yeah. And Poltergeist 2 definitely had one of those with that tequila scene. Totally, yeah. And Robbie's braces. I would say that was another like really great scene. Yeah, those felt like poltergeist moments that were pulled you know from the first movie they kind of felt like those moments yeah it still kind of had the look and the feel a little bit even though poltergeist 2 is horribly offensive in many ways in many ways yeah so for me i definitely was a fan of poltergeist i saw it in a drive-in when it came out so my first experience with poltergeist was through like one of those crappy metal speakers that they used to have where they just put it at the side of the car so i wasn't fully immersed in it the way you probably should be because it is sort of this sight and sound experience but i liked it i ended up liking it a lot more later i definitely I'm probably a little less hot on it than you guys. I like a lot of the movie, but then once they get into the whole thing with the paranormal investigators, I kind of check out every time now when I watch it. Like, I just don't find a lot of that stuff interesting. It's the same feeling that carries over to like the James Wan movies when those paranormal investigators show up. It's like whenever the paranormal investigators show up in any horror movie, I start to get bored. It's just not something I find interesting. Like, oh, we're going to set up all our computers and look at waveforms and (laughs) oh, like that's not how I want to deal with ghosts. I just want scary skeletons coming at me. So when scary skeletons do come at you, which they do in Poltergeist, I'm super happy, especially at the end. And yes, it's ridiculous that they stay in the house. However, that last 20 minutes of film is by far my favorite part of poltergeist it has sexy joe beth williams getting carried around the room rolling up a wall in her panties yes which as a 12 year old boy i thought was really (laughs) sexy because i thought she was really sexy mom such a babe then the clown attacks the robbie brother robbie and then we get all the coffins coming up and skeletons popping out of things and it turns into just a total house of horrors. The bodies coming out of the pool. Yep. Like most of the budget was sort of blown on that last 20 yeah. minutes. Like the, the revolving set and, and everything. Yeah. So like that last 20 minutes and I always sort of forget that it's there. Yeah. Like I always think this clown attack is going to happen sooner, but no, that happens at the end. Spoiler alert. All the good (laughs) shit happens at the end of that movie, in my opinion. I like the setup, too, and I love the Freeling family, too. I think they're totally endearing. But that last 20 minutes is amazing. That's some of the best 20 minutes of film I think ever made. It's like horror action in the best way. So much great stuff going on. At every turn. Yeah. I actually side more with Jen. I love the the paranormal. So that scene where he's in the... um, you know, going to, to go seek help and they smoking cigarettes in there and he looks just completely haggard with like dark circles under his eyes and you get the three Ghostbusters. <laughs> I love that shit too. James Wan definitely is pointing directly at Poltergeist for his Ghostbusters. Right. Well, he and he's been doing that with the Insidious movies and in the Conjuring movies to some degree, which is why the 2015 poltergeist remake feels so redundant and while it's not a terrible movie it's well made in a lot of regards 
there is just something about it that feels like we've already had our modern poltergeist and that's insidious because insidious is basically poltergeist. So it just yeah. has a feeling of extra redundancy because it's redundant already being a remake. And then on top of it, I feel like we already had our poltergeist remake. Yeah. Let's just talk about like what poltergeist brought to the table for horror history. It's got this element, which I actually kind of read into it a little bit more, but you know, this sort of, tampering with the environment you know this is with my new contemporary lens in 2021 but the sort of selfishness of capitalism mm -hmm. and ruining the sacredness of the earth which it does so beautifully in this movie it had already kind of started with uh carpenter's halloween but the sort of like the evil is coming to the safest place in the suburbs yeah there'd never been a haunted house movie that took place in a modern living room with hi-fi stereo equipment. And they have some serious stereo equipment. In I love their room. stereo equipment. <laughs> what Poltergeist was about and why it's so lovable is because primarily like this location and where it's set and the family that you're with. Diane is this kind of ex-hippie and Steven is a, a budding kind of selfish money. You know, he's only interested in money, but they... They sort of have this great mix in their relationship. Well, he's conservative and she's liberal. Yes. The easy coding of it. He's reading a book about Reagan and she's smoking weed. Yeah, yeah. it's great. <laughs> That's the kind of magic that I think this movie has and why it, you can still watch it again and again because these characters are, are incredible and where they are and the dynamics with the kids. The jokes in this movie and the humor and every single supporting character are are just gold. It does such a wonderful job of just setting up the suburban environment. That seems like it really feels like it comes from Spielberg. I have a tough time reconciling that like Toby Hooper had a real yeah. affinity for that kind of thing. I mean, he understands families like the Texas Chainsaw <laughs> family. But that last 20 minutes that's incredible is definitely Toby territory. Absolutely. I, I love the Freelings. I love spending time in their world. They're just they're just a really good family to be around you don't want anything to happen to them you really yeah. care about them and and that's something that kind of gets lost i think later on as the sequels go on with this but also just with this genre in general it's always a pleasant surprise for me when a filmmaker takes the time to have you actually give a shit about the people that are involved yeah. you know and this franchise in general i think there's only like three people that die throughout the whole franchise. No one dies in Poltergeist. And then, you know, spoilers, ahoy, here we go. But in um, Poltergeist 2, only grandma dies. Right. And she dies in her sleep. My point being is it's like, it's just a different type of thing where you, you know, it's not a high body count and you actually, you know, want most of the people to stick around. But I can't think of another, primarily a horror film, about a family with kids that I care about. Yeah. Like most of the time, if you set up a family, I'm like, I can't wait for that one to get picked yeah. off and that <laughs> one's fodder. You just start lining them up, like which one's going to go first. I literally cannot come up with another film where it's just like, I really like this whole family 
and I'm rooting for all of them, and I get emotionally worked up when things happen to them. I agree with all that, but I also think you can kind of go a little too far with the sentimentality of the family shit, and I think Poltergeist 2 definitely goes too far into that. Poltergeist 2, I was pretty excited for that when that one came out, and I did believe I did see it in the theater, and I remember being pretty disappointed. To your point, Troy, there are definitely some pretty great scenes in Poltergeist 2. My friend Johnny Lane and I were obsessed with the Julian Beck uh, Kane character. Um, before the movie came out, there were a lot of TV advertisements where it was like him at the screen door, like, you are gonna die in there! <laughs> and we just thought he was the most creepy looking guy ever it turns out he was creepy looking because he was dying of cancer and his body was basically being consumed and so he looked like a living skeleton yeah so they they signed on this actor julian beck and he had already been diagnosed with stomach cancer i think it was stomach cancer yeah and it unfortunately did sort of contribute to the the look of this this man he's very he's very elderly but he also looks very sick he's not even very elderly troy he was 60 he looks like he's dying he looks like he's like in his 80s he's skeletal his his he's thin-skinned and his bones are protruding and and that's all real so poltergeist to what happens to this this the freeling family is you know now they are in a different location they are staying with uh, Diane's mother. There's some retconning here yeah. about psychic abilities. It starts off on the worst foot possible. Okay, so the movie opens with Will Sampson wandering through the Arizona desert. There are, and there's these high mountains. And somehow he winds up with his other medicine man chief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These two Native Americans way up on like uh, this 300 foot pillar going like hi and waving around little medicine bags and then uh, a big storm cloud comes over that's right they conjure up i don't know what some ghosts yeah (laughs) and then he sort of has his call to duty to go help the freelings for some reason so that's how Poltergeist 2 starts. <laughs> Probably has not aged that well in its portrayal of Native American uh, mysticism. Yes. I have a very low tolerance for that. I mean, not in real life, but in movies. No, just in films and films. And it's because of this movie. This movie is what like ruined Native American mysticism because like I hated that part of this movie. Yeah. Just because I was like, why are we doing this? Like, I just want to be with the Freelings. And now we're doing Native American mysticism. Exactly. And it continues this character basically for for whatever reason we later learned that i guess tangina yes asked him to but he just shows up at the freelings door and says you need me and uh, i'm here to help with my medicine bag yeah and he does this shit where he like they sometimes they're looking out the window and they're like what's going on with uh what's his name again taylor taylor what's going on with taylor he's like waving his hands in the air and doing <laughs> indian <laughs> chants and like there's butterflies magically floating around him and it's supernatural native american mysticism that is is pretty offensive and there's really no reason for it just no. to sort of bring in this this element 
to help the poor white family that needs spiritual guidance or something. I don't know. Right. And it introduces this idea of this Kane character who is this preacher who led his congregation like a cult leader style into this cavern that would later have the Freeling swimming pool built over yep, it. that's right. <laughs> and right. they all had like a Jim Jones type suicide in that cavern. So really all along, the ghosts that were haunting the Freelings were somehow tied in or related to this cult, even though yeah. we saw that they were, it was because they moved the headstones. And that's like the most famous line in Poltergeist is like, you just moved the headstones. But now it's about Reverend Kane in this cult and Reverend Kane gets ported over to the next movie. Yeah. Like he becomes like a part of the poltergeist mythos. Like you got to hand it to Julian Beck. They saw him and they were like, even though he died, they were like, well, he's our Freddy Krueger. So we got to bring him back. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that. Look, it's, it's nothing new for horror films to retcon and try to add more information into the storyline for yes. the sequels. But what you just said, which is where the, you know, the, uh, the original idea with Poltergeist was brilliant. They only moved the headstones from the cemetery and the bodies were still under the house. And that's what caused the hauntings. And that was brilliant. That's what you call a clean idea because you're like, yeah. oh, I understand. There's a bunch of dead bodies underneath my living room. That's yeah. scary. And there was no reason to change that, but they did. Well, not to mention in, in the first movie, like it's clearly that's what's happening because at the last 20 minutes, which we've been discussing, it's like coffins popping up everywhere. The, visually, there were things that reinforced that narrative in the sequel. There's no way that could happen because there's this giant cave under the right. house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and like, yeah, we don't see any of the cane related ghosts in the first one because they wouldn't have been in coffins because they just all died in this cave. It's ridiculous to try to sort of retell this story for a sequel. It just doesn't make any sense. It's kind of sloppy and it gets really messy with all the, um, you know, now the some of the Freelings are psychic and Carol Ann's psychic. The mom is psychic. The grandma is psychic. And calling on the phone, the toy phone, she's That's calling right. Carol Ann. So we're already starting to mess up what was originally just a really beautiful idea. And people are getting possessed by tequila yes. worms <laughs> and puking out monsters. All of that is pretty bad. But the thing that really upsets me about Poltergeist 2 is the awful schmaltzy ending where they go to the other side. So in the first movie, Carol Ann is inside the TV, but she's also in the other side, which is this ghost realm, which we don't see it in the you first movie. You never see it. Yeah. But we do get to see it in Poltergeist 2, and man, is it disappointing. <laughs> it's just like this cloudy... It looks like Flash Gordon. Right. It looks yeah. like the other side <laughs> is Flash Gordon. And that's where Carol Ann has been stuck this whole time. Right. And like the family's got to go there as a unit. They're, and they're literally floating together like arm in arm. Holding hands. As if they were the Hawkmen in Flash Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> and like then they have to fight a monster that has like cane growing out of it or something that's like a stop motion animated monster or something and then grandma comes in like this angelic form and saves them it's so terrible yeah she's like holding carol ann she like hands carol ann back to the family and they all hug 
as bad as Poltergeist 3 is, and it's bad, and we're going to get into it, <laughs> nothing in Poltergeist 3 offends me as much as the ending of Poltergeist 2. And we should say that at least on a surface level, Poltergeist 2 feels attached to poltergeist because like the cinematography is very similar i know it's not spielberg jerry goldsmith coming back to do the soundtrack that's a big important part it feels of the same piece even though it's wildly inferior when we get to poltergeist 3 all bets are off nothing feels the same it doesn't even remotely resemble poltergeist at all in the remake we actually see the other world and there's a drone. They send a drone into the other side. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's pretty CG and crappy, but yeah. it's better than the other side in this. <laughs> yeah, it's not, you know, it's no great shakes, but it's better than part two's wow. other side. At least it's creepy. Like there's bodies everywhere. Yeah, there's bodies. And like, it's kind of geekery where yeah. you see just like fields of skeletal forms grasping. Yeah. No, the other side in Poltergeist 2 is like you, you hit that and it's one of those moments where you just feel deeply embarrassed that you're watching it <laughs> and you hope nobody catches you watching this movie. You're like, oh God, what am I doing? Try watching it when you're like 16 years old, like in the theater, because that's when how old I was when it came out and I was like, this bullshit is embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, there's other stuff in Poltergeist, too, like starting to tread on that embarrassing path, like Stephen has grown out his hair and he's trying to be a little more freaky and, yeah. you know, like, well, we're almost broke, but uh, let's try to make this a wild time. And Joe Beth Williams has gotten this awful perm. I yeah. know. And she's uh, wearing these these terrible looking like embroidered 80s sweaters and stuff. And it, it just starts to feel we're heading into the 80s more and it's not going well for the freelings. Sebastian, you did call something to my attention, which I, I totally missed even on this viewing, which is when Tangina shows up, who is the little person that the psychic from the first movie to come help the freelings again. And she meets with Diane that Diane is sitting there day drinking a giant bottle of Jack Daniels. Yeah, and she's got like a glass of Jack Daniels with like an ice cube in it, like a glass. So I was happy to see that Diane still knows how to party. Yeah, and the bottle is <laughs> next to it. She doesn't want to have to get up to refill her glass. <laughs> yeah, she's got no business giving Stephen a hard time about chugging tequila later, frankly. Although he does get creepy and rapey because he's possessed by Kane. Kane. Yeah. Which is not a fun scene to watch until he barfs up the monster. Then that's, yeah. that's cool. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as far as the 80s fashion goes, we're going to go into an even worse place. And all I have to say is I'm just grateful that I didn't have to see my beloved Joe Beth Williams wearing the kind of shit they're wearing in Poltergeist <laughs> 3. It's Because so it is the clothing in Poltergeist 3 is terrible. Yeah, I think we should move on to the actual yeah. film that we're discussing here. Let's just address Heather O'Rourke quickly. Heather O'Rourke tragically died immediately after the filming of this movie. We'll pay a little bit of uh, you know tribute to the poltergeist curse. In every poltergeist movie, an actor has died in real life. In the first movie, it was um, Dominique Dunn. She was murdered by a jealous boyfriend. It's a really horrible murder. And then in Poltergeist 2, we talked about Julian Beck. Julian Beck died, yeah. But he was already 
dying. I mean, I don't give any credence to the curse. It's just coincidences yeah. that happen. But there are deaths associated with each movie. Will Sampson also died, I think, not too long after Poltergeist 2. But you can't really tie that in. Yeah. And then, tragically, Heather O'Rourke died after Poltergeist 3. She was struggling with Crohn's disease and she had some kind of blockage in her intestines that was misdiagnosed. Yeah, it was. I think they misdiagnosed the Crohn's disease. They thought it was the flu and it wasn't. And what Crohn's disease is, is an intestinal irregularity. It's, it's something that you need surgery to help and right. they didn't catch it. And so I think she started suffering immune problems. So it was it's really sad. And it did hinder the production of Poltergeist 3, caused a lot of problems. Primarily in reshoots. They yeah. were going to reshoot the climax and she had died. And so they weren't able to do what they wanted to do with it. And the, yeah. and the medication that they had her on was also making her puffy. That's why she looks like right. her face looks puffier and stuff in the film and probably some sort of steroids or something like that. But it was, it was affecting the way that she looked also. So poor girl, just so sad. She was 12 years old when she died, which is really, really sad. This time when I was watching all three of these movies, I took the time to really appreciate what a great little actor she was. Yep. And she changes. Like, I'm obviously, she's getting older throughout the movies. But in the first movie, she's just adorable. Like, oh, the God. most adorable right. little blonde girl you can imagine. And she's a kind of the focus of the ghost. So she's a really important part. This carries on into the second movie. But I notice in the second movie, she's older and she acts older. Yep. Like, she seems more mature. And I feel like she's sort of adjusting her acting skills appropriately. Yeah, she's lear definitely learning, like... The first one, she's just, a, like you said, she just is cast because she's just the most adorable looking little girl. But then it looks like she's kind of learning how to be an actor yeah. in these other films. And it, it would have been interesting to see had she moved on and what would have become of her. Yeah, it makes it a little extra sad for me because I'm like, oh, she kind of really could have gone on to have a career. Yeah. Like you can see her acting evolving. I mean, this movie is a shit sandwich but she is doing a pretty good job like the scenes that she's in she's got a different sort of vibe about her she's older she's kind of got a little bit of a sass to her i don't know i really enjoyed watching her performance and i really had some admiration for her that i hadn't previously same well one of the things i was reading about her is that she did have an interest like if, if she would have lived and gone on she was um, had an interest in getting behind the camera she actually thought directing would be cool and um, one particular thing that happened on set is, I think it was during, um, and we'll talk about this, or maybe we won't, because we don't want to talk about every freaking scene in Poltergeist 3, but there's, <laughs> there's like, that you scene. Don't? You know? <laughs> but there's that scene in, um, in the garage with the cars that are like coming after Nancy Allen and Tom Skerritt. And I think there was some sort of accident with that um, when they were shooting it where uh, there was an explosion or something had happened. Something caught on fire. Something caught on fire. And when she came to set the next day, she was like, you know, first, you know, asked, you know, oh, my God, you know, was everybody OK? And then she was said to the director, she's like, but did you get the shot? Nice. She was 11 <laughs> at the time. This is an 11 year old. That's like, but did you get the shot? I thought it was sweet. I thought it was like, you know, she was concerned first with the safety of everybody. But, you know, but did we get it? I, I don't know. I just thought that was a 
a, a maturity beyond our years. So the second thing I want to bring up, which I think is a real tragedy of this movie, is the music. It is oh man awful. And the Jerry Goldsmith score from the original movies are so good, and you get this shitty like synth score that would sound like it would be on a straight-to-video horror movie by some guy, Joe Rossetti. Sorry, Joe Rossetti, if you're out there, but this score is abysmal. So this score, basically, we've gone from these, you know, Jerry Goldsmith, who has scored Alien. I don't have his filmography up here in front of me, but but this incredible seasoned uh, composer that has done countless films that are these beautiful scores and is locked in the sound of Poltergeist. Like he's gone and we've gone from this orchestral score to one guy on a synth doing this 80s like TV. It sounds like what you would get on Tales from the Dark Side, just minor chords and just, you know, a little bit of like, just kind of like stings. And this is how we begin Poltergeist 3. The font, the Poltergeist font is gone. We just have these... uh, Block letters. Opening blocky credits. That's like Arial font with the synthesis score uh, going over it. That just immediately feels like late 80s television. Your heart sinks immediately and you know you're like in bad hands. And it's unfortunate because the director, Gary Sherman, who both wrote and directed this movie, was responsible for a couple of decent horror movies. He did Deadline, a.k.a. Red Meat. Raw Meat. Raw Meat. Raw Meat. 1972 cannibal horror movie that takes place in Britain, the Britain subway systems. Which is really scary. It's really good. It's it's a... It predates Texas Chainsaw, and it's just as unnerving, disturbing cannibal movie. It predates Halloween, too, in that it has Donald Pleasance in the lead. And he also did Dead and Buried, which is a really fun sort of early 80s horror movie that Dan O'Bannon wrote. It was kind of his follow-up to Alien, weirdly enough. You know, he had some okay movies under his belt, which is a real shame that he's not doing anything good here. And I'm not going to leave out a movie he actually did after this that I loved called Lisa that came out in 89 that had um, Stacey Keenan and uh, Cheryl Ladd and D.W. Moffat in it. And it's a very good thriller. So before we, we go too much into Poltergeist 3, do you guys remember when this came out and like, were you guys excited about this? This one flew right past me. I remember it existing and I was like, huh, Poltergeist 3, but I didn't end up seeing it. Yeah. I think I could just smell failure all over it. I mean, I ended up hating Poltergeist 2, so I was done with Poltergeist. Apparently, they did back out of a lot of marketing because of Heather O'Rourke's death. So they they were hesitant to really do the press kits and junkets and all that. Right, yeah. They didn't want to capitalize on her death. I remember being excited, though, because I was still, I mean, I was still in it for the Poltergeist franchise. You know, it's like, yeah. So I I definitely saw it at home. I do remember the poster coming out in Fangoria magazine, and it was just Heather O'Rourke looking up at this skyscraper with some lightning hitting it. And I just f- was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> so just from the, the poster alone, it was just immediately a turnoff. Nothing on the poster felt like Poltergeist. Well, and it's true for the movie because virtually yeah. nothing in the movie feels like Poltergeist. Right. Apparently, Gary Sherman had this uh, idea that he really, really wanted it to take place in the city and use these mirrors. 
Yes. He just had this thing that he wanted to do. He was like, to hell with all the amazing visual effects from ILM that the, the first movie did. I want to use these trick mirrors that you can see in like early Charlie Chapman movies uh, <laughs> on set. Like he had just had this idea to just use mirrors throughout. And that was going to be the conceit. And I think they were trying to write this script around this. Yeah. Well, like I don't really necessarily hate the idea of it taking place in this Chicago high rise. It takes place in the John Hancock Center. I mean, the movie. I'm sure they didn't film it there, but it's sort of a famous large building in Chicago. The whole mirror gag thing gets pretty old pretty quick. Some of them are pretty cool. Some are cool. But basically, for anybody who hasn't seen Poltergeist 3, and there's probably a lot of people who haven't, what you're watching through most of this movie is that age-old trick that you've seen throughout cinema. You have basically a piece of glass and a double standing on the other side of it with a, a, a set that resembles the mirror image of the set that you're in. And the actors are are miming and matching their movements. This is what you're seeing through most of Poltergeist 3, where like, you know, the actor is facing you one direction and their double is facing. So you're seeing the back of the head with the other actor. And then the actor on our side of the mirror walks off camera while the mirror image stays there and turns around and goes, <laughs> um, you guys, I, I was looking for this because I had read this earlier. Um, they actually did shoot in the John Hancock Tower. Oh, OK. The one thing they said is that none of the building's residents would be disturbed. And there was a 60-person crew, and it took them four weeks to figure out the logistics. And the tenants never even noticed the film was shooting there. Oh, wow. Some of the mall stuff in the garage is not, or the, the parking area and stuff is not Yeah, they don't have that. a mall in the John Hancock no, building. but the rest of it, yeah, they did. So the setup of the movie is that Carol Ann has been ditched by her <laughs> mom and dad, <laughs> who we've, we've come to love in two previous movies. But apparently they don't love little Carol Ann that much because they've dropped her off in Chicago to live there with her aunt, Pat, and her husband, Tom Skerritt, who is the general manager of this building. He's Uncle Bruce. And their teenage daughter, Donna, played by Laura Flynn Boyle. Whose name is Donna. Whose name Donna, like in Twin, in Twin Peaks. Peaks. Yes. Which is a year later. And this was her debut film. Oh, nice. But yeah, there's, there's basically no explanation of why her parents, her family would just send her off to live with her aunt. Well, I think the explanation is they want her to go to this gifted school for troubled children who are also really smart. Like it's gifted yet troubled children. And apparently the only school is in Chicago. Yeah, this school that she's in, which, and you never really know like where these things are. Like it's really confusing where this stuff takes place because basically in this building, they set it up like this J.G. Ballard high rise. Like there's yes. there's a, a mall in there and there's, you know, it looks like there's some medical stuff or the people kind of live and work in this building. And in the beginning, there's, there's a scene where they're going down this escalator and you hear over this intercom, they're saying like, everything you could ever want is right here in the building. It's sort of like piping this voice to all the people that are in the building that they never have to leave. And it's this magical place. 
And so at first I thought the school was in the building, like it was a, another part of the building. How could you have thought that? You get this amazing car ride where they drive to the school <laughs> and Kane, the preacher, is now menacing Carol Ann. And the shot is so ridiculous because you see a shot of Heather O'Rourke just in the car looking up at the window and the window is glass. So we're going to get a reflection in the glass. And you see this actor playing Kane who is not. Julian Beck, a totally different actor who they've just put in makeup. He doesn't even really look like Julian Beck at all. No, this guy looks like the spirit Halloween costume of, <laughs> of the king. And we're just seeing his reflection in the glass of the car. But it's clearly just they've got the actor on like some kind of platform outside the car and he's just kind of looking in and it looks really unscary. And he's going, Carol Ann, Carol Ann. And one thing that this movie is famous for is that the name Carol Ann is said in this movie some crazy amount of time, like 190. 121 times, I believe. 121 times. And not only her name, but all of the characters' names are repeated over and over and over again. In fact, stuff is just repeated ad nauseum in this movie. Yeah. Like the dialogue is just like things said over and over again. Right. And just for example, like Kane, you know, this ghost Kane character, like all you ever hear him say is just like, Carolyn. come with me. Take me to the other side. That's all he says. Come here, Carolyn. Take me to the light. <laughs> yeah. Take me to the light. That's it. So he just sort of stands and stares and appears in the trick mirrors and says, come here, Carol Ann. <laughs> you know, and this was the, the one thing from Poltergeist 2 that actually was pretty scary was yeah. this character. And now we get this thing. Yeah, they clearly are like, okay, he's our Freddy Krueger. This is going to be the horror character everyone's going to love. And so they're inserting him in all of these scenes. Like, this movie could just be a haunting in a high rise. We don't right. need... Kane, like, why is Kane coming over from <laughs> California? Like, he's <laughs> going a long way to do this. No, oh wait, yeah, he was from California. Yeah, right? but this is this is why I thought it was interesting to sort of go over the the trilogy is because we started in California, and the initial idea was that this housing development was built on top of a cemetery. Then in two, we change all that and say no, it was actually this cult leader that trapped people under this housing development before it was built and killed all these people. And we have this guy, Kane. Then we moved to Chicago from Arizona because the Freelings have moved to Arizona. So Kane followed them to Arizona in two. Now we're in Chicago. Kane follows <laughs> just the girl to Chicago. He just wants to go after the girl, don't care about the rest of the Freelings. The parents are like, we don't give a shit. We don't need to watch over her. We'll send her to Aunt Pat. So already this storyline is all over the place by the time we get to three. They do say at some point in the film, it might be Tangina who's, who discloses this, but the reason that he's always just after Carol Ann and everybody else is just in the way of Carol Ann, that's the right. whole thing, is because Carol Ann was born in the house like in the house, uh, at the first house where they this took place. So why does Kane need her? Because she can take him to the other she side. She can take him to the light. Is this ghost going to carry her over to California? No, he just wants to go to the light. I think the light can be anywhere, Troy. All right. 
It can be in a high-rise in Chicago. It can be anywhere. So why does that make the entire high-rise haunted with all these ghosts and zombies? It's all about Carol Ann. That's it. Whatever mythology is going on with the ghosts and stuff makes no fucking sense in this movie. Because I don't even know if they're supposed to be followers of Kane at this point. Because in Poltergeist 2, he has like followers that are supposedly helping with his ghostly machinations. But here it's like, I don't know, did he bring his followers with him? And if he did, we don't really see them. No, you just see these sort of zombie hands grabbing at people and corpses around, which makes zero sense at all i was just thinking that he's he's able to like conjure up other ghosts wherever he needs to go they don't even necessarily have to all follow him from just California. like day laborer ghosts <laughs> yeah, exactly. kind of, to help him out well maybe a lot of people died building that skyscraper right I'm sure they did yeah he's like there's some dead people here i can i can <laughs> well, that would them. be cool like why don't i make the movie about like oh well tons of people died building this skyscraper make it that <laughs> like yeah. it's so easy to make this a better idea than what they did it's like they are trying to bring mythology over from part two right which no one liked that much so we're we're doubling down on part two because we had a cool actor who died in it who did a good job but this is another thing that horror films do sometimes whereas if you have a sequel that starts to go off the rails a little bit a good move is by part three to maybe return to form and maybe go back to the original place. You see that sometimes yeah. But by the third. But this just doubles down and says, nope, we're going to the city. We're going to bring this uh, character that was invented in part two that sort of broke the mythology of the first one yeah. and make it even more confusing and misconstrued and not explain anything. And we're going to make everyone unlikable. Especially her parents, her parents who would just send her off to go live with her aunt. And never call or anything. But even her aunt, who's played by Nancy Allen, she just like married Tom Skerritt a hot minute ago. And he's like way more invested in being like super uncle than she like. She's like just their interactions. Like he's giving her a hug good night. And he's like, you know, so happy you're here. And like, you know, have a good day. And like he has like a better rapport with her. Yeah. Than her own flesh and blood. This is Joe, supposed to be Joe Beth Williams' sister. And it's like, she's just like irritated that she's here. And for some reason, like they really emphasized that, like she has a line in there that's just like, why did she have to come live with us? She's such a burden, Carol Ann. Well, it would make more sense if if he was the brother of Joe Beth Williams. Why did they make it that Nancy Allen is her sister? It would make way more sense if it was like, oh, the new wife doesn't want the sister's kid there. Totally. Totally. Yes, but this is her actual niece. The Nancy Allen character makes no fucking sense from soup to nuts. Because yes, like you're saying, the setup makes no sense. She just keeps talking about how much she can't stand Carol Ann the whole movie up until five minutes before the end. (laughs) Like they stop in the elevator before they're about to head into the climax. And she's like, I hate Carol Ann. And then like five minutes later, she's like, I love you, Carol Ann. Yeah, and and. At that moment in in the movie is when usually that character, if they were the wicked stepmother, would have this turnaround and yes. and see things differently and and realize their true calling. But yeah, it's at that moment where she's just like, "Fuck this little shit." She's a piece of work. Also, who cares about any of these teenagers? That like, I mean, the the ride to her school to Caroline's school. 
the little girl who's like around her age, which she's carpooling with. The mouth. Oh man, I love that. I love that kid. Her line delivery is so bratty kid yeah. one-on-one. It's like she's kind of amazing. She's so over the top. She's she's got these huge glasses and the yeah, the this awful 80s hair. And the retainer, and she's just terrible the whole way there. And like the whole time the mother's like Susie or whatever her name is like cut it out and like yelling at her I mean it just seems like the ride from hell yeah and then the Carol Ann gets to school and like the kids at school are menacing her because of her ghost experience so like it's so lame like she gets out of the car and this kid's like boo see any ghosts lately and so now that we're at the school can we talk about this this school for troubled what is it troubled gifted kids gifted kids with emotional problems i believe is how they phrase it now look this movie has a lot of problems but i don't want to hear anything negative about dr seaton <laughs> who is played by richard fire we got to get into dr seaton this character is fucking amazing <laughs> he's this bald nebishy doctor he's budget tim curry yeah, budget tim curry who fucking hates caroline he hates her so bad because he's convinced that she's creating these mass delusions in people's minds where they're seeing ghosts Mm -hmm. and there's this scene where they're watching through two-way mirrors he's got these other two dorky scientists or whatever observing carol ann in the other room and carol ann is being like a sweetheart but he keeps referring to her like oh she's a piece of work She's just a spoiled brat or whatever. And Carol Ann's not being bratty at all, but he's insisting that she's this brat that's manipulating everybody. And at one point, because all of the ghostly stuff happens in mirrors and we're using a two-way mirror, this corpse hand comes out of the desk and throws a coffee glass at the two-way mirror. Which, by the way, like everybody observing this is witnessing Right. (laughs) Or is it just him? Like, he sees this hand. We're seeing it from his point of view. Yeah. He sees this corpse hand take this this mug off of a desk, throw it at the mirror. The mirror shatters everywhere after this thing just explodes for no reason at all. And he says, see what she did? She made you think that you smashed your own coffee mug into the mirror. (laughs) This stuff, I think, is amazing. I I love this stuff. This is where we're just going into, like, complete batshit crazy territory. When the movie's doing this kind of stuff, I'm kind of having a good time. It's not good. It's terrible. But it's kind of so bad it's good territory. This is the kind of stuff that you get from the 80s that you're never going to see again. It's like, if you can think of the worst episode of Nightmare on Elm Street... You know, and you get this kind of shit in here. It's that level. His tone is at this level through the entire movie. This is all he does is just bitch about Carol Ann and, <laughs> and try to show people that the only ability she has is to, to create mass hysteria. Yeah, it's actually mass hypnosis. Mass hypnosis. Another element of this movie is that we've got some teens who want to party. Can't have an 80s movies without teens. I guess what they were thinking was, hey, we need some teens in this Poltergeist franchise. we got to get the teens in there. So we get this collection of painfully 80s teenagers. The clothing they wear is just this 
bad designer 80s shit. This film's 1988, right? It's the worst. Right, the worst era of fashion. The worst. The guy that Donna has a crush on, who has a crush on her too, Scott, has this terrible, like, tears for fears type of hair (laughs) and look about him. And, you know, yeah, they're wearing these awful sweatshirts with brand names on them and acid wash jeans. Does somebody have a fedora tipped to one side, kind of? Yes, there's fedoras. One of the girls has this terrible Cindy Lauper type of hairdo. It's just the worst. If you imagine, like, if the two Corys designed the costumes for this that's totally what it looks like 100 percent. and yeah they just want to party so we get this whole plot about they're having this party and it turns out to be lame and like carol ann is like really being nice to donna because donna wants to go to the party but she has to babysit carol ann and carol ann's like no no go i can take care of myself so donna's like okay and of course the party is just in another apartment in the building tom scarrett and nancy allen have gone to this bizarro art gallery opening which is another thing about all of these things being self-contained in this building like there's an art gallery that nancy allen i could never figure out if she's one of the artists or if she's the curator i feel like she's running the gallery okay and the other woman's like the curator or something yeah so you're getting nancy allen and tom scarrett are in this gallery opening with really bad 80s movie sculptures. I kind of like the sculptures. <laughs> well, and by the way, we should mention Tom Skerritt is um, kind of like the operations manager for the building because this yes. building has yeah. not uh, officially opened yet. I mean, it's still under construction in a lot of ways, which doesn't really make sense to me from a safety perspective that these people would be able to live in there, but whatever. There's like one area that they keep coming back to, which is still drywall yeah. and extension and an extension cord laying on the floor. Like you see a lot of that. That's right. Yeah. And one of the ways the ghosts are fucking with the building is like they're freezing things in the building. And so it's really cold and everybody's complaining about the cold. And they're also cracking the mirrors by the elevator bay or whatever. They're cracking that. But yeah, so Tom Skerritt, like, I guess he's kind of, he's in operations. He's some sort of manager for the building because people keep coming to him. A lot of maintenance guys keep checking in with him. So they stuff. both work in the building. Yeah, they work and live and it's it's all contained. So they're at this gallery opening, which is in the building. Uh, Donna wants to go to a party, which also is in the building. That's right. Then they think, well, we got to take this party elsewhere. Because this party isn't hasn't reached 11 yet. So <laughs> there's this pool that's in the building that Donna has the keys to because her dad is the building's operation That's manager. right. Now, she not only has her keys, she's also figured out how to turn the VHS monitors back two hours. She can get into the security room and, and manipulate the cameras. Right. Mm-hmm. So she's got like hacker level 80 skills here, mm-hmm. yeah. like being able to trick the security guards and she's also got keys to the like convenience store that's also in the building and so tears for fears convinces her (laughs) to go steal some some beer they need some beer well he says he's got money they don't steal it well they do break into the convenience (laughs) store yeah yeah i would still arrest them little b and e but the whole thing is just so weird that you could play this off like it's it's what every other 80s movies is doing where you know the teens go off somewhere else but the fact that all of these things have to take place in the building is just it's always confusing to me it just means that like her dad could just like walk down the hall and they'd they'd be right there like you never just really feel like 
anybody's in real peril because they're just downstairs. But it is a big building. I mean, it is like 100 stories or something like that. I mean, the, the pool's closed at night. No one's supposed to be in there. No one's supposed to be in the convenience store at night, too. Like, all that stuff's shut down. So I guess they were thinking they'd be able to get away with it. I don't have a problem with the idea, but I do feel like they don't explore the idea with any real... There's no purpose to it. That's what it is. You'd think that if you're in a, you, okay, you set up the story so that you're in this big building with all these other people. No one else is affected by anything that happens right. Right. to the whole building, even though like crazy shit is going on. It only affects our like five characters. Like, shouldn't this be affecting everybody? This should be like Towering Inferno with ghosts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's what this kind of should be. Like, you've, you guys have seen Shivers, right? Yes. Yeah. So David Cronenberg's Shivers, like, that. the whole premise of the, of the movie is, like, this is the building. It's all contained. Nobody ever leaves the building. Let's go. And then, therefore, like, everything that happens is sort of a cause and effect of that, where this is just sort of like we're in a building, and then you slowly just keep learning that, everybody's in the building but there's ghosts in it if you want an 80s take on this with a horror movie a cheesy horror movie that's actually pretty fun demons 2 does this same idea demons 2 takes place in a the high-rise building like that only it's just demons like attacking everybody right. in the building the whole concept of having a building is that it should affect the building everybody yeah right and like and everybody should be running and screaming because there's fucking ghosts everywhere but no we're just going to concentrate on five people and mirrors <laughs> you could have a mirror house of mirrors anywhere like why does it have to be a skyscraper you just blew my mind because if we if this was actually like a towering inferno with Carol Ann running with all this chaos happening around her. This could have been like the best poltergeist. Well, it would have been better than this. It's a completely squandered premise. Yeah. That's what I think you're rubbing up against. Yes, that's exactly right. It's it's the setup that never actually sets up. Yeah, and, and for all intents and purposes, we might as well be in the suburbs or a small town or something because we're just following the same set of characters to different locations. They right. just yep. happen to be in the same building. They just go down the hall. And it doesn't matter that it's the same building. It just is. Right. But it does give us the opportunity for one really fuckingly awesome, ridiculous thing to happen. And that is Carol Ann has been left alone and she's being menaced by uh, Reverend Kane. He comes, shows up in the mirror. He grabs her through the mirror at one point and like lifts her up in the mirror and all of that's well and good. But what I really love is that Carol Ann ends up wandering around into the garage because the building <laughs> has this big garage and there's a fucking puddle in the garage and this puddle becomes really fucking important like a lot of shit goes down in this puddle <laughs> Carol Ann gets sucked into the puddle but she manages to like hold on to the edge of the puddle because like ghost hands come out of the puddle and pull her into the puddle then Scott and Donna show up and they see Carol Ann's being pulled into the puddle <laughs> and then they go and help and then they get pulled into the puddle That's right then this is how our characters are, are being pulled into the other side and they have gotten there in a puddle in a garage this is like in the middle of an underground section of the building like in an underground parking structure where there's we don't see any moisture anywhere and there's this giant <laughs> puddle 
in the middle of this parking lot that Carol Ann wanders over to and steps right into the middle of and just starts looking around. And this puddle is like six feet wide and probably an inch deep. And she just decides to walk right into the middle of it. And you know the director wants you to think it's so clever because it's like, you know what puddles have? A reflection. (laughs) I bet you didn't think about that. And then like once she gets sucked into the puddle, then we cut to Tangina on a plane. And Tangina, once again, is played by Zelda Rubenstein. Her and Heather Rourke are the only two cast members that wanted to be in this piece of shit from the original poltergeist so she's getting that like kind of classic i'm the psychic getting a message in the plane like Scatman Crothers did in the shining yeah yeah it's exactly it's so Scatman Crothers in the shining and so she picks up the plane phone and calls the one guy who doesn't believe any of this stuff like she calls dr seaton and he's like oh she's convinced you too huh yeah like why the fuck is she calling him no he thinks it's Carol Ann. He's like, Carol Ann, are you playing? Are you? She's, he's like, he's <laughs> tricking me. He's so bent out of shape and pissed off again that, like, Carol Ann. But he's like thinking that she's like, he doesn't even entertain that it's Tangina. And then Tangina has on a plane and they're like, are maybe canes interfering with the phone? I don't know, but they're, they're doing the whole hello, 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 and like totally get disconnected. I love the idea that this school that is supposed to be for, for troubled, gifted, you know, sensitive kids is is being run by this guy that's just rolling his eyes the whole time. <laughs> Thinks they're all full of and shit. Why would Tangina have his number? Why would Tangina even know this guy? Like we're setting up this relationship between Tangina and this Dr. Seaton. And then later they're going to show up and they're going to join the search party for the kids with Bruce and Pat. And they're sort of squabbling the whole time because, you know, they're coming at this thing from a different different sides or whatever. And like Tom Skerritt, who, by the way, can I, we just give a shout out to Tom Skerritt. He's love kind Tom of my Skerritt. favorite part of this I movie. I love Tom Skerritt. He's yeah. really likable in this he movie. Like He, he kind of has this look on his face the whole time like, this is a bunch of bullshit, but I don't care. Well, no, that's not true. He does seem to be the only one that kind of gives a shit. Like yes. Pat obviously hates Carol Ann for most of the movie until about five minutes at the end. Dr. Seton hates Carol Ann, like actually hates Carol Ann. Yeah, like wants to see her like thrown into like a cell yeah. in like a <laughs> madhouse or something. And we're always wondering like, why did Carol Ann's parents just ditch her? So Tom Skerritt is the only sort of sympathetic adult in this movie. He's charming. He's kind. He's just like not miserable like everyone else is. I mean, he's just keeping it and he's keeping an open mind about things throughout the film. Like and Tangina, she's super pissed at Dr. Seaton because she's like, you did this because you made her talk about Kane. That's how we found her. That's actually a pretty good Tangina that you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Spent a lot of time with her lately. But Tom Skerritt is referring to Dr. Seaton and Tangina as Tweedledee and Tweedledum. No, it's Tweedledum. It's Tweedledum and Tweedledumber. Yeah, she has a good comeback Tweedledum there. and Tweedledumber. That's right, right. But I do love this one moment where they're like walking down the hall and Tangina's like giving her like 
typical Tangina, like, you have to bond together. Your love is the only thing that will save them or whatever. And she's like talking about her dumb fucking talisman that Taylor apparently gave her, which I don't remember if this happened in Poltergeist 2. I don't think there was a scene. It's this like turquoise nightmare, like necklace that becomes this MacGuffin that it somehow has this magical power to stop Kane. She kind of starts rubbing it strangely in the in the beginning of the movie. So we're sort of she's pointing our uh, attention to it. But yeah, it's another one of these like in this trilogy where they they kind of invent things that sort of make you more confused and make the storyline even worse. Yep. But I do appreciate in this moment where Tangina is giving her speech, Seton's like, well, that sounds like a bunch of nonsense or whatever. <laughs> I appreciated their sort of oppositional rapport. I enjoyed it in some of these moments. But then, like, the fucking craziest thing in this whole movie that happens And I'm not going to say that this is a great moment that makes this horror movie like, oh, you got to see this moment because it's so good. However, it is so brain boilingly crazy that this is like the holy fucking shit moment. They go back to the apartment and, you know, they go to the mirrors and they see Carol Ann in the mirrors. Pat is calling to Carol Ann and Carol Ann comes to the mirror. And then it turns out it's really Kane. And like Tangina is like, I'm surprised you didn't realize that wasn't really Carol Ann to Pat. But then like Tangina goes up to the mirror and just like she gets zapped by the mirror and it just becomes this desiccated corpse. She's just like a <laughs> mummy on the floor. And then (laughs) fucking Laura Flynn Boyle comes out of the mummified corpse of Tangina. So shriveled up life force Tangina is laying on the floor and you see this wet hand burst through her corpse's face. And then (laughs) and then slimy Laura Flynn Boyle screaming crawls out through Tangina's corpse's face. And then they forget about Tangina. Like whatever yeah, just that leave corpse her. is just, just leave left there. there. Nobody <laughs> even looks at it ever again. Nope. Nobody's even like, what happened? It's the most confusing part of pretty much any 80s movie that I can remember. Like, yeah, they just walk away with Laura Flynn Boyle and then and then they they sort of like just treat her like you you okay? No, they put her in a bathtub and she's like, ah, 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 and then they put her in a bed and she just keeps going, Carol Ann, Carol Ann, Carol Ann. We get the most Carol Ann shouts. She just keeps ramping it up. She's like, Carol Ann, Carol Ann, Carol Ann, Carol Ann, Carol Ann, Carol Ann, Carol Ann. Like over and over and over and over. Like you just want somebody to smack her. Like yep. stop saying Carol Ann. And nobody this whole time has given Tangina a second thought. She's just like desiccated remains in the living room. Yeah, they don't address it at all. It looks like she exploded. Like, it's just pieces, and that's it. And then we just, like, that's what I said to Sebastian later. I'm like, are they just stepping over her? Like, Well, they have, have like, a a janitor for the... (laughs) They they probably just thought the janitor will take care of it, right? Because it was right in the doorway. It's right in the threshold when you enter the apartment. This isn't the suburbs. This is Chicago. There's people that'll take care of that shit. (laughs) It's a lot of money to live in this joint. 
But then after that, Dr. Seton is wandering around. He wanders right past the place where Tangina's corpse was and doesn't even look around. And then like he hears Carol Ann calling or something over by the elevator. And he's like, God damn you, Carol Ann. (laughs) Get out here and fess up to the fact that you're causing mass hallucination. Like if she could do this, she should be like the little girl in Firestarter or something like the government should like want to like weaponize her her. to weaponize her. (laughs) But never mind. We're just going to scold her about it. (laughs) And and I just realized I I know it it sounds like we're kind of jumping all over the place like, oh, there's Tangina and she turned into a corpse and then Laura Flynn Boyle in the bathtub screaming and Dr. Seton noticing Carol Ann. That's literally like cut for cut how this is playing out in the movie. Pretty much. Regarding like weaponizing her mass hucination skills, doesn't the fury take place in Chicago? I think it does. Yeah. That's really? where they were yeah, where they're like <laughs> there is an actual school where they're doing that. Anyway, it was just funny because that school does exist. So yeah, Dr. Seaton has wandered over the to the elevator to look for Carol Ann and it opens and like the elevator's not there. And then Donna comes up behind him and shoves him into the elevator shaft killing him and we did forget to mention that scott has reappeared through the pool which was ice was iced over mysteriously he'd come up through the ice and was like covered with ice and and that made no sense it was just like tom scarrett was looking in the window at the pool and then he did a double take and then the pool was iced over he had been alerted about the teens in the pool and they caught the teens right there. So that's why he was there. And then suddenly he turns around and the pool's iced over and Scott comes out of the ice and he's covered with ice. And then Dr. Seton shows up and now Scott's suddenly not covered with ice. And he's like, see, Carol Ann did it to you again. <laughs> and Carol Ann's not even there. Like she's nowhere to be seen. Does Tom Scared ever call Dr. Seton out and say like, no. Yes. I, yeah. He does. Yes, okay. he does. He's like, no, you don't understand the pool was covered in ice and this kid just jumped up through the ice. Yeah, no, he does. Tom Skerritt eventually turns on Dr. Seaton. That's why we love Tom Skerritt. That's right. But anyway, so Donna has now pushed Dr. Seaton into the elevator shaft, killing him. And then Scott reappears and is like giggling. They walk down the hall together giggling and we get another mirror gag where we see like they're not really there so that they're like evil ghosts or something. Well, then she tears off her face too. Don't yeah, that. they kind of embraced a little bit and then they have this sort of nightmare on Elm Street kind of like they pull some of their skin off. So we see that they're actually, I don't know, demons or whatever the, the fuck they're they evil are. evil ghosts. Right. But they're kind of zombies underneath. And then, yeah, and they start cackling. They're not corporeal because that's what the mirror is telling us. They're not corporeal. And she even says, because in case you don't get all of this, she even has a line that says, can you believe they thought we were them? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Just in case, (laughs) just in case you were wondering. Yeah, after that, we just enter into this whole kind of boring running around where it's Bruce and Pat. And they've got to save the day because now everyone's been sort of picked off or whatever. 
we do get a kind of uh, amusing scene where the garage is now frozen over and all the cars are frozen. Kane is in one of the cars and they're like, what do you want? And he's like, you. And then he like <laughs> drives the car at them and like there's cars exploding and everything. But then, it, of course, it all turns out to be a, an illusion and we get this bizarro moment where like the gallery curator or whatever shows up she's driving a bmw and as jen pointed out she loves bmw so much she's got like bmw earrings or whatever <laughs> i missed that <laughs> and she's like what are you two doing having sex in the garage because they're all like all wet or whatever like and she thinks they're out in the garage having hanky panky or something oh that's right but so after this crazy nightmare just happened where like frozen cars tried to uh, kill them. And, and I think the only way they stopped it was Tom Skerritt threw his lighter down on a puddle of gasoline and everything blew up. And, that, and then they, they sort of walk it off and they go into the elevator after they had seen Donna burst out of Tangina. Like they've seen some <laughs> shit now, but they're in the elevator and they sort of like, <laughs> can't wait to get back in, cuddle in the sheets. No, it's completely bananas. And they, uh, no, they also, we cut out their, they're like go into this freezer and this freezer turns into like water or oil or something is coming at them. No, it's water. And then Tangina comes out of the water and is like, yes. take this. And she's giving him her, her thing from Taylor, her like amulet the or talisman. whatever. The talisman. I love that effect too, because they, they, the way they shot this thing was, you know, it was obviously like a set built to look like it was turned right side up so it looks right. like there's a wall of water coming at you yeah. but it's what they're doing is draining a pool of water in reverse and you, you can tell because they got this poor woman uh <laughs> zelda rubenstein sitting there and she's got this she's like holding her breath and her face is all scrunched up and it looks like she's getting water up her nose and then you see this water in reverse running behind her and you could just tell like this was the worst experience of this woman's life. Yeah, she looks really uncomfortable. <laughs> but the effect is cool, though. The effect is cool. And like you said, Jen, this is where, you know, this amulet that she's been fondling through this whole movie for some reason, she she hands it over to them and says, it's outside in. Yeah, outside in. Yeah. It's the outside in. So she's giving them direction and the magic that they need to defeat the Reverend Kane. This does happen after the moment in the elevator, because then after that, they figure out they've got to go up into the roof and get on the window washing crane and go outside the right. building to get back in because they can't get back into the apartment because it's like blocked by supernatural power or something like that. Yeah. But it is confusing because that one moment where they're in the elevator which is like in between all of this crazy shit is they give each other this line where they just like are laughing it off and they are talking about just going and snuggling in the sheets. And by the way, nobody's found Carol Ann yet. No, they're having like a whole, oh, that was what a night. Yeah. Another crazy <laughs> night in, the, in our building. But Carol Ann's still totally missing. Tangina's turned into a corpse. They think they're just going to go back up to the stairs and they're all going to be there. But this is also when Nancy Allen was like, I hate Carol Ann. Like, this yeah. is like where she has the moment <laughs> in the elevator. <laughs> the way it goes down, dialogue wise, is Tom Skerritt's like, let's just go upstairs and get into bed. And Nancy Allen's like, well, the first thing I'm going to do is pack up Carol Ann's stuff and send her <laughs> back to her parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, a way to kill the mood i know 
I'm going to throw out that little girl that you have really grown attached to and feel like a father to. I'm going to throw her out because this has clearly been all her fault. All her fault. This 12-year-old girl is clearly responsible for all of this supernatural nightmare that we've been in. Pack her things and send her on her way. Then we can have sex. And not a moment sooner. <laughs> I want her on a ground bus. As Sebastian was saying, they go and get on the like window cleaning lift because yeah. it's the only way they can get into their apartment. There's some pretty hilariously poorly made up stunt doubles. You'll notice if you watch the when they get on the lift. And look, I don't blame Tom Skerritt and Nancy Allen for not wanting to go on this fucking lift because no. it's really scary. Yeah, but you can clearly see stunt doubles in like Wigs. bad Tom Skerritt wig with like a mustache. I was reading that they really did get on this lift, so they're like they're like actually on this high rise out on this window cleaning unit or something. That's uh, like you can see know. stunt doubles in the movie. Okay. Very clear. They didn't look like them. At least, I mean, in some of the shots, it's them. Yeah. Yeah. But those are just shots of like, you just see them in the thing. Right. Like they could have shot that anywhere. But when it's actually moving, that's when you see the, the stunt doubles. Is that how they figured out how to beat Kane is to go outside the building and then break in a window and go back inside a building? I mean, it's not like, they're pulling this thing off. Like, yeah. The whole thing is a mess. <laughs> Everything's a mess except for the ending when the outside in, it all came together. But so that's okay. So at the end of the movie, that's how they defeat Kane is they crawl outside and then they break in. No, what's even more like ridiculous than like how they, they don't defeat Kane. Fucking Tangina shows up and is like, I'll take you to the light, Kane. Oh, that's right. But then Jen, Jen, explain to me why they needed to go outside and go back in if Tangina could just take care of all this stuff anyway. Exactly! That's what I'm saying! They have to go and get Carol Ann away from Kane with love. It has to be love that frees Carol Ann from Kane. Then Tangina can leave Kane to the light. If they just left Carol Ann, Kane would take her into the light, meaning Carol Ann would die. That's right. carrying over from okay. Poltergeist. Okay. Carol Ann can't go into the light. Definitely. Carol Ann, don't go into the light. Right. Okay. So that's what that scene is with Tangina. She's like, Saying goodbye. And the bullshit element is, and the reason why none of this registers with you, is because the whole fucking movie, Nancy Allen has fucking hated <laughs> Carol Ann. And then at the end, Carol Ann appears in the window and is like, Aunt Pat, just go run away. <laughs> like, just go. I'll die here in the light and you can go and live your life and be happy. Forget about me. I'm horrible and terrible. She says, my parents didn't even love my me. My parents don't love me either. You don't <laughs> love me. No one loves me. It's the saddest fucking thing. And the fact that like poor Heather O'Rourke died soon after makes it even more heartbreaking yeah. because no one doesn't love her. No. Everyone right. loves her. Everyone watching loves her. She's a cute, cute little kid. We loved her in the original movie and even in the bad sequel. So like the fact that she's got to like have this horrible moment of insecurity in front of goddamn Nancy Allen. <laughs> 
But that was evil. That was evil Carol Ann, though. Well, then, yeah. Then it, the Carol Ann turned into Kane Carol Ann. Yeah, they, they throw a really bad mask on her at the yeah. end of this little speech, and she's like, and she back inside. <laughs> it was, that was trickery. So Nancy Ellen says, no, actually, I do love you. Yeah. And then that's when Tangina appears. Yes. Yes. Tangina's like, you broke the code. You love Carol Ann. I mean, it's horseshit. It's, it's absolute <laughs> horseshit. But they do desperately, sweatily try to make it all work. It's all right. got to be about love. And no, and then Kane's like, okay. He sort of takes Chan- Tangina's hand. And, and then, they go off into the light. Okay, bye, Carol Ann. <laughs> yep. I'm off to the light. Thanks for helping. Sorry I terrorized everyone you've ever loved with the most nightmarish scenarios you can imagine. Heaven awaits. (laughs) (laughs) And Tangina gives some line or something like, it's okay, uh... It's better me than anybody else. And I want there to be like a sitcom. Tangina Kane. <laughs> Their wacky adventures in uh, in the other side. They're like floating around on clouds. Tangina says something along the lines of like, this is the way it was always meant to be. <laughs> something like that. So that's that's it. It's rock solid. It is a good conclusion for the the entire poltergeist the most satisfying conclusion you could possibly imagine to wrap up for the poltergeist franchise poltergeist franchise that's right this is how i always imagined it would end and so yeah we get the family hugging and we, you know we should say that carol ann has been wearing red feety pajamas this whole movie she looks like one of the brood or something running around the building totally especially when she has the demon face on her and the blonde hair yes oh yeah. my god yes and i feel so bad because there's this is a 12 year old girl having to spend days and days and days on a movie set in feety pajamas she probably wants to like start wearing makeup and shit <laughs> but you can tell that Poor Heather O'Rourke had already passed away at this point because we never see her face Mm -hmm. in this last shot. Yeah, so this last shot after Tangina and Kane kind of hold hands and and walk off, Tom Skerritt is holding not Heather O'Rourke. He's holding a little girl that her head is buried in his neck. Yeah. And which should be, you know, the final shot in the film where everybody's smiling, but it's painfully obvious that, like, this is not her and she's hiding from the camera. They can't even go to like a close-up of her cutaway shot to see her smiling. From some other scene or something, yeah. Well, it's not even the final shot because the final shot is of the building with the lightning and <laughs> the Crypt Keeper like <laughs> laughing at the end. Or, no, it's Kane. Is it Kane? Okay. It's Kane laughing because now it's him and Tangina having fun up and... <laughs> They've already started their sitcom. That's that right. is the only visual effect in the whole movie. All of the other effects are in camera effects. Yeah. The director is very proud of that. That this last stupid, stupid <laughs> shot in the movie where the lightning strikes the building and we hear the cackling of Kane, <laughs> implying that Tangina has failed, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> 
the whole thing has been a failure. So let's let's not split hairs here. Oh man. That's the end of Poltergeist 3. The box office for this was 10 million and it only grossed 14 total worldwide, which is pretty terrible. I mean, they eked out a profit, I guess, but Considering what a big hit the original movie was, we have fallen so horribly, horribly, horribly low. And you know what? We don't need to discuss why it failed because it's pretty obvious because it's terrible. <laughs> the end. That's why it failed because it was really bad. I do like to try to imagine a, a small epilogue where you get Carol Ann writing back to her parents saying, Dear Mom and Dad, so far Chicago has been a lot of fun. Although after my horrible teacher died in, a, in an elevator and Donna erupted out of Tangina's withered corpse and the whole building froze over. And we never found out what happened to Scott. Yeah. He doesn't come back at the end. Like Scott is just lost in the ether, I guess. Poor Scott. <laughs> a lot of unanswered questions in Bouldergeist 3. It's probably a good thing that they never tried to make a sequel to this. Because like, how do you recover out of this swan dive? There was like a television show that didn't have anything to do with this. There was. And Gary Sherman was involved in it. He was oh, okay. like a showrunner on it. But it had nothing to do with the Freelings. It okay. was just like a. It was like a haunted house somewhere, like a gothic-y type haunted house, which goes against the whole poltergeist ethos. Right. It's not about gothic haunted houses. It's about normal places being haunted, but whatever. And I think they didn't want to have any more sequels out of respect to Heather O'Rourke. Yeah. 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 It's, you can't do that. And famously, you know, none of the other cast members, they all completely said hell no to Poltergeist 3. Yeah. So yes. like Craig T. Nelson said absolutely not but you know i will say that you know we've really trashed this movie and deservedly so however i do own the blu-ray <laughs> yes we do uh, in fairness it came in a set with poltergeist 2 which is a movie i also don't like but i am a completist and i felt that i needed to have all of the poltergeist films Except for the remake. I did try to win the remake several times at Horror Trivia and failed, but I did want to own it, but I didn't want to pay for it. <laughs> but I will say that I do kind of enjoy this movie just in a so bad it's good kind of way. It Because of like the just the ridiculous scenes that we described, you know, the whole saying Carol Ann a million times has become legendary. We have a friend, Mike Metzger, who 10 years ago made a really great video where he just cut all of the people saying Carol Ann or other people's names. I think it's called who damn it who because tom, tom scary at one point when he's with scott in the pool he's like you know who damn it who like he's like somebody has carol ann and then that's followed up by 300 carol ann's to answer yes. him that's it's right. a great video you can find it on youtube it's really funny and fun to watch probably better than watching this movie although i do feel like you need to see the Tangina turning into a desiccated corpse and Laura Flynn Boyle emerging from her and then Tangina coming out of the water in the freezer. And we forgot to mention the freezer. Don't like the dead animals in the freezer start going. Yeah, they start <laughs> talking and yes. I'm not upset the Poltergeist 3 exists. I still enjoy revisiting it. I'm glad that we have all of the Blu-rays because I am a fan of the franchise. It's an absolute affront and offensive 
to the original like sure. it is an abomination if you love if you like really have sentimental love for the original this should be something you hate because it is a perversion it is an absolute perversion but i kind of live for that kind of crap yeah horror franchises in general uh always have a downward spiral and i have a morbid fascination to try to force myself to go through all of them at least once, but it's always fun to see which one of the franchises goes the lowest. And and this is, this really does take the cake. Like I, I can't think of another <laughs> one. They all have their bad entries, but Poltergeist goes from like being a classic, like this is a yeah. horror classic. And in two sequels hits rock bottom and goes lower than Halloween or Friday the 13th or uh, psycho even yeah it's it, it's a it's a fun game to play to to try to start at the beginning and go to the very end and see if you can make it and also it i just really love tom scarrett and getting to spend a little more time with heather or work they're the best parts of this aside from all the bonkers shit that happens <laughs> like that your reason for liking poltergeist 3 is just like oh god but tom scarrett I mean, come on. He's awesome. If you are an appreciator of bad horror movies, especially bad horror franchise entries, like you can impress people with throwing this one on, <laughs> I think. Because this, like Troy said, it goes lower than you could possibly imagine. With the Freddies and the Jasons and the Halloweens, like it goes low, but you're never, you don't feel like you've actually sort of broken through into another dimension of awful. And like, I kind of feel like this movie does. Like Donna emerging from Tangina's <laughs> desiccated corpse. It's just like a whole level of fucking batshit crazy. And like, how did we get here? How did we fall so far? Yeah, just, just at that moment, freeze frame and try to try to go back, trace your steps and see where we started with Steven Spielberg. Well, that's what I'm saying, though, is like, because this is, a, a, yes, with, with Jason or Freddy or Michael Myers, like, look, the, you know, original films are great. However, like, you're not in love with the characters as much as you are in Poltergeist. Like, it's a beloved film. You know, minus the, if it didn't even have the horror, you would just be loving like some sort of drama with the Freelings because you just give a shit about what's going on with the Freelings. And that's like, that's what makes it even worse. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to go, Carol Ann, Carol Ann, Carol Ann, Carol Ann, Carol Ann, Carol Ann. You've been waiting to do that this entire podcast. <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening. And 
we'll see you real soon. 